Well, it's good to, good to be with you. And I also want to say this, that whenever people bring out stuff like this, I always remind them that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. <clears throat> Actually, I told Eric uh, probably about two weeks ago, because Karma was digging through a bunch of photos, because John's getting ready to graduate, and of course you go through all these pictures from childhood, and uh, I saw a picture of Eric and Karen, and uh, so I've got the one to break out on you. <laughs> uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Ephesians 5, and I'm going to read verses 25 through 27, and before we just kind of unpack the content of the text, I'm going to give an illustration, but let's read the text first. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. <clears throat> and then I want you to notice that what the love of Christ does for and to the church. It says it's to make her holy or set her apart for special purpose. Cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word. And so he says there's a special purpose involved. Uh, I'm going to make you holy, but I'm going to do a work of preparation and purification so that you'll be ready for what I've called you to. So he said there's the washing with the water through the word. And then it says that he has a design and a desire to present her to himself as a radiant church. And I chose the NIV text because I love that phrase, radiant church. In other words, she's going to fully reflect the glory of the king. It says that she would be a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Then I want you to go down to verse 32, and forgive me, tech people, I didn't tell you to, to put up 32, but it says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and of the church. Paul was teaching practical things about the relationship between husbands and wives, but in the end of the practical teaching of, of the husband's role in reflecting Christ and his ministry of love for the church, but the husband's love for the wife, and then the wife's reverence and respect she shows her husband, Paul ends up and he's saying, listen, marriage in the natural is reflective of a greater spiritual reality. Marriage is simply a prophetic statement of a greater reality. And that is the mystery of the relationship between Christ and his church. This morning, what I want to do for about a half hour, and I'm going to try to do it as quickly as possible, and this is going to be an introduction. And every time I come, uh, I'm going to kind of build on this theme through the summer. I want to talk about the church recapturing its lost identity. And there's a lot of talk about identity in the church, and I'm for that, believe in that, want to cheerlead for that teaching. But a lot of it is individualized where we talk about the, the recapturing of our own personal identity. And it is the $6 million question. You know, who am I? Why am I here? What is God's purpose for my life? But I also see there is a corporate crisis with identity. 
And we are in an urgent hour. We're in a critical hour of human history. And the world has a lot of questions. And in the vacuum of a lot of uncertainty, the world, I believe, and God is creating the platform for the world to ask the church some questions. And, and just as 9-11 happened and they said that following 9-11, the greatest church attendance we've had in decades occurred after that moment of crisis. Well, I believe that God is going to create a platform for the church, but unlike the aftermath of 9-11, where the church, when as America went back to church for one Sunday to get real answers in the midst of crisis, it seemed like the church had kind of stumbled into that moment. And we really didn't have definitive clarity. It was like we lost our voice. And you go, well, why do you say that? Because I listened to commentary of pastors trying to be a voice in the midst of that situation. And as I listened to different pastors being interviewed, they contradicted each other in trying to discern the times and the season. And they, they even turned on each other about why God would allow, each, uh, allow that circumstance. And so what it did was in the middle of the, the church needing to be a voice and not just some faint echo, we ended up arguing with each other trying to, again, make the church look somehow relevant in the midst of it. And so the majority of America came to church, walked away from church saying, there is no answer there. We've got to keep looking for the answer. But I believe that if the church will address its corporate identity crisis and we get our voice back and get our stride back as God allows a context to be prepared for us, we can stand up and we can tell the truth. Now, when I was young, and probably a little younger than the picture that you saw on the screen, I used to watch a uh, game show called To Tell the Truth. Uh, rewind your memory back to tell the truth. And basically, uh, the idea behind the game is that they would want to feature one person with, that's achieved some great achievement or notoriety in some way, but they were a person that had significance but maybe not well known. And they had a panel of celebrities that were to try to discover who is the real person that they wanted to feature, but they put them out there with about three or four other imposters. And so each of them would come out on stage and they would state the person's name, what they did, and they would each say, I am this person. And so it was the task of the panel to ask clarifying questions to where they could discover who was a fake, who was the imposter, and who was the real deal. And then the, the culminating moment of the show was after everybody voted and weighed in on who they thought the right person was that matched the character or description or the personality of the person, then they would build the drama up. Will the real, and state their name, will the real person, would you please stand up? Well, that little phrase is prophetic for us in this hour. 
because God is asking us to be the real church and would we please tell the truth and would we stand up? I went this last weekend to a, to a seminar and uh, I just felt like it was one of those Kairos moments where God had me go to something right at the right time to get a lot of confirmation that I was needing. And I love that when all of a sudden God is stirring things within your heart and spirit and you're going, okay, God, I, I feel like you're speaking to me and, and you're, you're, you're revealing things to me, but I really need some clarity and I need also some confirmation. And so I felt like this last weekend, God gave me a boatload, not this weekend, but the last weekend, he gave me a boatload of confirmation on many things. And so some of the things that I'm going to share are new and original, and some of the things were confirming things that the Lord gave me uh, by the seminar that I went to. This text, now I want us to go back and kind of unpack this text. I always looked at Ephesians 5 when it talked about the preparation that Jesus would do for his bride to prepare her to be a radiant bride, to be a radiant church. I always felt that somehow, and this is where we take our own assumptions and we interpret the text through our viewpoint. When it talked about washing and cleansing, for some reason, ever since childhood, and it talked about her having spots, I always thought that it was referring to somehow her wedding garment somehow had wrinkles, and somehow had dirt. And then I kind of moved beyond, you know, her fashion to thinking about her own personal cleanliness. And so I moved away from a paradigm that she didn't have the right garments. Her garments were not ready. And I think there's some other biblical metaphors that maybe I got from other scriptures and I just interpreted right into that, that text. But then I did move away from that and saying it's really not talking about what she's going to wear. But this is talking about her own person, her own being, being prepared. And this is about, yes, her being washed, her being purified, and there is a dimension truth about her purity and her cleanliness. But then it says that she is without spot, without wrinkle, and without blemish. And I found that those three terms, when you look at them in the Greek, only one of them, the first one, spot, refers to something that could infer something of, you know, dirt or filth that is upon the body. The other two refer to the substance of her complexion. And wrinkle and blemish, and for those of you that maybe greeted me and looked and said, Does he have, didn't he shave certain parts of his face today? No, I've got stitches in my face, and I'm going to get them out in about a week. But I had a blemish. Uh, and I found that blemishes begin to appear upon your complexion, and it's a sign that you're not getting younger, but that you're getting older. <clears throat> My dad jokes with me as I found certain knots and knobs and, you know, spots and things beginning to appear on my complexion. He said, that's that meanness in you that's finally coming out. 
you kept it hidden for quite a while, but I knew that those meanness bumps would appear sooner or later. So I've been going to a process in the last month of going to a dermatologist. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that when she looked at my face and saw the number of bumps on there, she began to go, I got my work cut out for me. Uh, but she began to inform me that she was only going to work on one or two of them at a time. And I said, I immediately responded back to her and I said, that's because you don't want me to look like the zombie apocalypse when I leave here, right? Because literally, if she took all of the age spots off and she took all the cysts off my face and removed all the moles off my face that have expanded and grown bumpier and larger over time, then literally it would be scary. And so because I told her, this is not on insurance, but I'm paying cash per visit, can you at least do more than one of them at a time? And she said, I'll do two, but that's all. I don't want you to frighten the kids, all right? But the last two statements of the wrinkling effect of the bride and the blemish effect on the bride was what he was saying is he was saying, listen, I'm not only going to cleanse the church, but I'm going to keep the church in a place where she is youthful. I'm not going to come to a church that is arthritic, unfruitful, not having the ability to display the life that is in it, but the, the, the expression that Paul conveys about a bride that is ready and adorned and prepared for Jesus is she will be vibrantly alive. She will be youthful in her spirit. She will be forever young. Get that phrase. She will be forever young in her spirit ready to conceive, ready to multiply, ready to be married to the Lord. So people ask the question and they say, why or who and what will the church be that Jesus Christ comes back for? Well, I want you to know the church that he will come back for will be the, like the church that he left. He left a young bride that was awaiting his return, but he left a young bride when he left. So the bride that Jesus will return for, if we really want to recapture the church's lost identity, we've got to go back and ask the question of what was the bride like when he left her? She was young, she was vibrant, and she was ready to go into a process of being married to the Lamb and to be fruitful and multiply. But what we've done over 2,000 years is we have spent the last 2,000 years, I, I feel a lot of leaders and a lot of denominations and a lot of churches, we spent the last 2,000 years trying to complicate Christianity. And because we complicated Christianity, the church right now is dying of old age. And we have these church wars between different parts of the body of Christ. And there may be even some of you that are engaged in a church war right now. And some of you are fighting a war of the past saying, you know, this new generation, they came and they just stole my church. I talked to some of the elder saints and they feel like, 
newer generations have just told them to go take a flying leap. And the church church that they used to have, that they used to enjoy, does not exist anymore. And they're somewhat bitter and resentful because they feel like somebody has stolen my church. Then you have another upcoming generation where they have been either so hurt or bruised by the church, so battered by the church, they love Jesus but no longer even want to attend church. And Josiah and I were talking about this yesterday. In one of his college classes, they were talking about a survey where there were 50 people, kind of a man-on-the-street interview, and over 50 of the individuals when they were talk, asking about Christianity, all 50 of them had a negative response about their perspective about Christianity. 50 out of 50. And, you know, when he said, Dad, what do you think the stat was on the answer to the question? And I thought, well, it's probably going to be about 25 out of 25. When he told me, no, every single person that was interviewed, man on the street interview, had a negative response of their view of Christianity. And so with that, when they re-asked the question about Jesus, 50 out of 50 gave a positive answer. So we find that Jesus still has kept a good reputation in spite of his church, in spite of our dysfunction, in spite of our immaturity. And so some people don't even want to attend church. They love Jesus but hate the church. And I was so cynical at one point in time, and even though I was still a leader and still pastoring church, people would ask me, how you doing? i say, I love Jesus, hate the church. Because in 30 years of ministry, some of my greatest pains have been inflicted upon me. Sorry about the cracking voice. I'm not going through puberty again. But I was outdoors all day, and I feel the effect on my voice today. But there is this thing where all of us have war stories, and we bear the scars of the wounds based upon what we've endured by going to church. Or can I say, going to church. Glory. And so the second category of people say, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And so many of them are having a private relationship with Jesus. And you ask them, where do you go to church? I don't go to church, but I love Jesus. And me and Jesus, we have a nice thing going in the privacy of my own home. And I still read my Bible. And yes, I like it closer to God out in nature or whatever the weird thing that they come up with. But then there's another group of people that are kind of like the re-engineers of church society. They just want to blow the whole thing up and start all over again. I know you've been tempted. <laughs> and that's why you chuckled the loudest on this third group of people where we go just say, it's broke, it's not going to work. And so let's just deconstruct the whole mess. And I want to say to us, we need to understand, you know, brother, what I need is hot water instead of cold water. Okay, if I could just get a, a cup of hot water. 
What we've got to do is we've got to say, no, we don't need to deconstruct the church. Because in that process of deconstructing, sometimes the re-engineering of church culture don't know where to stop. And some of those that have been re-engineering the church, they're even throwing Jesus out of the church. And so we're losing some of the key elements that make the church the church. And so what we've got to do, though, is we've got to say we're not going to just blow the whole thing up, but we do have to reexamine foundations. And we've got to go back to the beginning. If we're going to turn back time, if we're going to be forever young and we're going to be like the church that Jesus is going to come for and we realize that the church that Jesus is going to come for is going to be like the church that he left, what we have to do is we have to go back and see the church that he left. And we've got to examine core elements, essential elements. And instead of the 2,000 years of layers of complexity and complications that have led to old age in the church where we're so layered down, it's like we're spiritually arthritic. We can no longer reveal the life of God that is within us. We've got to go down and say, what are the life essentials here? And focus upon life essentials of what is the essence of the expression of the life of God in and through the church. And I think that God has not left us without the knowledge it is found in the Bible. And so if you will, I'd like you to go with me to Acts chapter 2. And this is just a very familiar passage of Scripture. Whenever you talk about early church, New Testament church life, we always go to this text. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to review the, the four key essentials, key elements. Here's the brother that's going to rescue me. Thank you, Jesus. Hopefully it won't burn the hair off my tongue. Thank you. You know, Mark, if he had an offense towards me, he'd go, I'm going to give it scalding hot. <laughs> He's right in the middle of a message. I'm going to silence his voice. But it's just right, my brother. Jesus. But anybody like I said? Is your voice sore? It's always good to come back here to get abused. That's right. That's the song, the next song I was going to sing. We only hurt the ones we love. Okay, I've given you enough time to go to Acts 2, verse 42. Now, there are many characteristics in this passage, but I want you to see that there are causes in this passage, and then there are effects. And I think that sometimes as teachers teach this passage, we like to try to say that every single one of these are essential core characteristics that characterize the church in the New Testament. And I want to say this, that I believe all of them have a nature of character, but I want to go down to the core 
And I want to say there are probably three or four core essentials, core elements that made up the New Testament church life. And then the rest of these descriptors are a byproduct of that life that they were expressing. Did you hear me? Once you, once you break this passage down, you will see that there are three or four, and you go, the reason why I want to say there, there is three or four, you go, well, make up your mind, preacher. Is it three or is it four? It's kind of like the Ephesian 4 passage, Ephesians 4 passage, where we argue whether it's five-fold ministry or a four-fold ministry. Because pastor, teacher, many times are looked at as one office. And then people say, no, it's pastor and teacher. Well, as we look through this text, when it comes to fellowship, we're going to see this term fellowship and the breaking of bread. And some scholars will say they are one in and of the same, and the breaking of bread is an expression of the life of fellowship. But I also, as you look under the hood a little more, it says fellowship and the breaking of bread And it's not just a type of fellowship. You will see that it is an expression of fellowship, but it is a very specific type of fellowship that we're called to. Okay? And so however you want to look at that, underline it, mark it in your Bible, the way you want to reteach this, I'll let you teach it the way you want to teach it. You study it. But there are four core elements And this is what the scripture says. It says that they, let me read it instead of paraphrasing it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And maybe at another time I'll get into the word devotion there. But it means one of both diligence, sincerity, and passion. There is not just kind of a a sober focus here of this is where we're going to spend our time. This is where we're going to spend our focus. There are many other things that we could do, but we don't have time to do them all. So we're going to do the big things right. You know, a part of our identity crisis, brothers and sisters, that the church is going through now is that we are spread so thin because there are so many things that are competing for our attention. And so what we end up doing is we do nothing well. And then we end up following distractions and we spend our entire corporate life focusing on the minors and we've got to go back and get the majors correct. We want the byproducts of life And you'll see the many byproducts, and we'll review those in just a minute. But we've got to go back to the basic core elements of church life. And when I say church life, I don't even want to say church. I want to say of Christ's life. Jesus said, if you want my life in your midst, I want you to be devoted followers that focus on these four key things. And I promise you, you obey me in these areas, you present your heart before me in obedience and devotion in these areas, I will show up in your midst, I will come in and upon you, I will be with you, I will anoint you, and I will do through you what you've always longed and wanted to have done in and through you. My glory will be upon you. You will be a radiant church. 
A church filled with my glory. The first thing it says is they devoted, they focused with a singular passion upon the apostles' teaching. Now, next time when I come, we're going to spend a whole message talking about what that means, the apostolic teaching. In Acts alone, there are over 18 apostolic messages that are preached. And so we not only have the acts of the apostles, but we have the teaching of the apostles. And you're going to find out that the teaching of the apostles, which the gospel has the power of God to bring people to salvation. How many of you know that what we have is a missing power dimension in the message now. And the reason why is we have gutted the content of our messages. We are more eloquent and creative at communication, but we have gutted the content of the gospel. I'm sorry, but I, at Easter, you know, I was saying, bring us back to the centrality of the cross. You do not read one of the messages of the apostles preaching without having a redundancy of the preaching of the person and the name of Jesus and the work which he accomplished through his cross and resurrection. Now we may think we can outsmart God for a while to be an attractional church, to pack pews or pack chairs and get a crowd. But we will not see the transformation of people without the power of God. And so if I today sat down with some of you and said, tell me what the apostles taught. Tell me the apostles' teaching. Tell me the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you could not articulate that. And therefore, because we have an articulation problem in knowing the substance of our message, we do not have a message that can move men's heart to God and does not penetrate the veil of deception over their life. And so we preach to them a Jesus that can help them with one or two of their problems. Christianity becomes a coping mechanism instead of means of deliverance from sin and Satan's power. And this, you know, I'm passionate about that, you can tell. But I'm tired of people being in church for years and years and years and really, we don't see the fruit of a changed life. I've got to go back and say, there's something wrong with my gospel. Because the gospel that the apostles preached and taught was one that radically changed men's life. You go from a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church and one revelation of the risen Christ. This man is undone and changed by the grace of God. Paul said, I was the chief of sinners. I mean, when he understood where he'd come from, there was just this remorse over what he had been. But thank God he preached the reality of a brand new creation, saying old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Thank God.
We'll pause. The apostles' teaching. Then the next thing that it says is it said they focused not only on the apostles' teaching and preaching, but it says, and to the fellowship. To the fellowship. This was the reality of a covenant community that experienced a work of God in their midst where there was a common covenant, but out of that common covenant came an understanding of a common stewardship, which led to unprecedented sharing with each other. Now, in the seminar last week, this brother talked and he said, because I know this is the Bible and I know that it's inspired by God and God breathed upon Luke to pen this. He said, but I am stunned by the amount of the converts that were in the early church. The thousands of new believers that were swept in. When the Bible says, and it described this explosive, momentous environment that they lived in. It says, and not one of them had a need. He said, I struggle with, are you, are, are you being an exaggerator, Luke? Are you just trying to say, you know, people were being saved and people were being healed and God was moving and things were happening. And then you talk about how they had extravagant giving and unprecedented sharing. And then you make a statement that not one person had need. Now, I'm going to make a statement that this is not to condemn, but this is to convict. Even with a community of believers of this size, 200 or so folks with children and adults. If we ask, are there any needs here today? With 200 people, we would be amazed if people shared the secrets of their needs with this covenant community. This shows that what we have here is not a full New Testament apostolic, authentically apostolic expression. You say, but Lynn, we're trying to get there. I understand. And so when I share this, there's a lot of grace because again, we have 2,000 years of complexity and layers that we've got to peel back the onion and get back to the core. And I believe that them not having a need with multiplied thousands of people, there had to be a supernatural dimension to that. But I don't want to just read that and pass over and go, man, that was something unique and can never happen again. Jesus is coming back for the church that he left. And so could we be a church that is so focused upon the gospel again that we really connect as a covenant community and we have unprecedented fellowship and common community where all of a sudden there is extravagant giving where substantive needs are met in the people of God. And we're not intimidated by that. And we also are not intimidated whether I have to surrender being a Republican to be able to do that. 
Can I? No, I'm going to say that for the next time I preach. When I teach on fellowship, I'm going to kick some sacred cows. Because when I say a common stewardship, one of the things about the kingdom of God that we come into, and it's kind of antithetical to how we've been raised in American culture, because I come here, I got my land, I got my house, I got my car, I got my things. And then what we do is we compartmentalize our giving and we go, God gets a tenth, but the rest is mine. It's like a perversion of the teaching on tithing and giving. Guess what? I believe in tithing, but all of it's God's. And the very house that you live in today is not your house. Can I inform you? Your car that you're driving is not your car. The money in your bank, oh, yes, that is. I earned it. No, God blessed you with it. No, but I have a job. I worked hourly for that. No, God gave you that job. So you keep working it back logically and you'll find that every good, every perfect gift, everything that you have, you got it by grace. You got it because of his favor. You got it because of his love, his kindness, his mercy to you, everything that you have. So you're just called to be a steward of it. But what I do is sometimes when I'm challenged and whether we're going to steward this, we say, yes, I'm a steward. Yeah, and everybody was amen to me. I appreciate that. That was a great encouragement. But then when it comes down to the practical details, well, they won't keep care of my car like I would keep care of my car. <laughs> oh, this is just the reality. The devil is always in the details. And so what we do is we become, you know, resistant to risk. To be extravagant. Just to say, God, in a radical way, I'm going to be a steward of what you've given to me. And I'm just going to go ahead and risk things that maybe I would have been afraid to risk because I'm first an American and then I'm a Christian. Let them get their own stuff. I work by the sweat of my brow. I had to earn everything to get everything I've got. And those, you know, when we do, we're so judgmental about everybody's work ethic and about, you know, the, the litmus test and the grid of their laziness. There's, there's mostly lazy. There's really lazy. There's just downright dirty lazy. There's downright dirty rotten lazy. And so what we do is in our stewardship thing, no, 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 no. I've seen you, I've watched you. As if you've deserved everything you got. Okay, enough of that one. That's next month or two months from now. Two months from now so you'll heal up over the pain. Then it says the breaking of bread. And to me, I believe that it's a subset of fellowship, but it's a very specific fellowship. And this is where they celebrated together in a common meal called the Lord's Supper. Where are you going tonight? I'm going to go over to the Lord's house and have supper. Do you get that phraseology? 
the Lord's Supper. Paul rebuked the Corinthian Christians and he said, you know what? Your coming together is not good. How would you like to go to a church that says, where the apostle that has established this church says, I don't want you coming together as often as you do because every time you get together, it's not good. There's a worse mess after you come together than if you're just separately pursuing your spiritual lives apart. 1 Corinthians 11, he says, your coming together is not good. And why was because they had taken that which was sacred and holy, the Lord's Supper, the covenantal meal, the love feast, and they had just turned it into a potluck dinner. And he says, guess what? If it's all about just satisfying the belly and satisfying the palate and enjoying a good meal, you have homes to eat and drink in. Don't you know that when you come together for the breaking of bread, this is a covenant act, a covenant meal in which God comes in the midst, Jesus comes in the midst of his church and breaks bread together with you. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. And he said, and when you come together, Yes, there should be the means of food by which you share and there is a place of exchange which is an act of covenant and an act of faith. But at the centrality of that moment of specific fellowship, it is based upon the cross and remembering what he has done. Now I'm going to give you a permission slip to do stuff. Today in the church, we almost have to apologize about being spiritual lest we're afraid of being called religious. Oh, don't be religious. Can I just challenge you and say this? A lot of the people that are the greatest accusers of those that are identifying religion are the people that are the experts of religion. You recognize the religious spirit because a lot of times you're the most religious of the bunch. Now let me give you a personal example to illustrate what I'm trying to explain. I was invited to go to a church planting strategy session with a lot of high-powered church planting strategists. And when they invited me, it was like, wow, great, I'm going to go there. And so we talked about the state of the church. We talked about the state of the Spirit-filled church. We talked about how that unless there is a real intentional effort of the pastors and the preachers of the gospel that occupy the pulpits in the church in America right now, if they don't start preaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that every one of the single Spirit-filled denominations and movements in a generation, that subject will be extinct in the church. It'll be on the books, but it won't be practiced and it won't be experienced. And so this guy is up and unpacking how the statistics of people getting saved. You know, it's amazing how some churches exist for an entire year and they do their stats and not one person has been saved I mean, 
you know, for them to think some one person gets saved in the church would be as if they know that the coming of Jesus is imminent. The kingdom's about to break out. Jesus has returned. We had one person get saved. And so people getting saved, people being filled with the Spirit, people being baptized, people being healed. I mean, it's just amazing how you see since the charismatic, the, the, the crest of the charismatic movement, you look at that graft and you go, oh, we're in deep doo-doo. Now, maybe not in this local expression or maybe some of the people that we hang with, but by and large, when you look at the church as a whole, you see the salvation stats, then the spirit-filled stats, baptism of the Holy Spirit, water baptisms, healings, those things like that. I mean, it is, and, and you're going there saying, okay, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Think happy thoughts right now. Because, I mean, it, it, it was so weighty. I mean, as a church leader, you could go, I'm going to walk out of this thing depressed. You know, Eric prayed over the, no, I didn't say give me a gun. Shame on you. But Pastor Eric prayed for the youth team, and he says, you know, God, let them know their labor is not in vain. You know, otherwise you begin to think, what's the use? And the enemy loves for us to fall into that thing. Are we going to make impact? Are we going to make a difference? But so we talked about the needs. So many churches closing down, more churches closing than opening, and all these things. And so you see the burden. You see the, the immensity of the need out there. And for the church, really, stand up and be the church. But at the end and conclusion of this, there was not, and this was a two-day meeting, there was not one moment where the leaders or even from the people hearing all this news, we were broken and moved to get on our knees before God. And I waited, I waited, I waited for, because I wasn't a leader there. And I, I was just waiting for a leader to say, and you know what? We can strategize and we can plan and we can, we can pull teams together. But, you know, unless the Lord builds the house and, and unless we seek the face of God and get his strategies and, and unless we appeal to heaven, if my people that are called by my name, unless we engage in prayer and seeking his face, we can think of the best ideas, but they will come to nothing. And you know what? I went through that two days and not one time did we even pray. The only time we prayed is when we said, bless the meat, let's eat. And so I waited and I waited and I waited. I was waiting for someone to raise up a standard. And finally at the very end, and I knew it was coming down and I thought, well, maybe they're going to culminate this with this Holy Ghost prayer time where we're empowered. They lay hands on us and say, get out there, boys, and get them. And the guy goes, well, everybody, make sure you got all your stuff out of your room. And, you know, and I, I said, wait a minute. Can, and you know what? It was one of those awkward moments where I said, I, I don't mean to come off sounding religious. But all of this great mission field that you've outlined in the Midwest and the state of our urban centers and our cities. And you, if I, I'm not taking this seminar, I mean, it's dark. And it's going to take God. 
And God's creating the platform for the church to stand up and shine and radiate the glory in the midst of the backdrop of such void and such darkness. And I said, guys, I don't want to come off sounding religion, religious, but one of the things we didn't even discuss, we didn't even engage in during this seminar all week is we did not even pray one time. We didn't even invoke the scripture that the harvest is great and the laborers are few. But we should pray to the Lord of the harvest. And you know what? Half the guys looked at me like, oh, come on, we know that. That's a given. That's a stated. We've got, a, we've got some drive time. Come on, get over this. But then, praise God. And it wasn't some of the older guys there. It was a bunch of young guys that they began to say, I appreciate you saying that. I felt this all weekend. And what we should have done is we should have begun in prayer. And in the middle, after the bad stats were unpacked, we should have paused for prayer. And we should have finished in prayer. And so when we go and break bread in, in each other's house, Men, you have the permission not to have to go and talk about the latest sports game. Would you start talking about Jesus? Amen. Women, you have the permission not to just talk about the kids and what they're doing in school. You have the permission to talk about the testimony of what God is doing in your life. And it may not be relevant to everybody in that small group or in that connect time. But there will be someone there that will be in need of what God is doing in your life. Don't feel like you're religious when you say, let us pray. And when you fellowship and break bread together, and whether it's refreshments or the whole meal deal, at the end of that thing, say, guys, we want to redeem this meal and make it about covenant today. What we want to do is take the bread and the wine and break it and bless it and drink it and remind ourselves again why we're here. We're here because of Jesus and what he has done in our lives. Don't be afraid. Do, do you just feel liberty when you say you can be spiritual? Instead of going to another church meeting and we just kind of like, what are we doing here? I got all dressed up and no place to go in God here. And yes, I can come in on how good your Rice Krispie bars are this week at small group. But it's got to be more than that. I love your chili. I love your pie, sister. I love all of that. I will eat each and every one of them and do it for the glory of God. I'll put that brownie in there and say, watch this. In Jesus' name, whom the Lord loves, he makes fat. Hallelujah. I will do it, and I will do it with all my heart. But there will be a time when I go, I don't care who the Colts drafted. I don't care who the Packers got. I don't care about who's in the NBA championship. I don't care about the news or the news cycle. I am here to connect with the one who said, if you would come in my name, I would be in your midst. 
Now, some of you are going to be afraid to talk to me about the Colts. And I would say, you're right. You can talk to me about the Packers, but not the Colts. That's why Eric said once a month, <clears throat> I got to finish. Said apostles teaching, fellowship, bringing of bread, prayer and worship. But just quickly, I want you to look at the results. He said that the results of these four core elements, he said that there would be an awe and a reverential fear. And that's because of the manifest presence. Now, this is me paraphrasing it. He said that there would be the byproduct of this type of life, gathering, connecting. There would be healing and miracles. There would be a supernatural flow. Not by focusing on the healings and miracles, but by focusing on being the church connected to the head. The greatest miracles and healings comes out of the simplicity. Duh, I couldn't get it. It was amazing. It was like, duh, I never could get it. You mean that miracles come out of relationship? I thought it was about the book of 14 principles and steps to get my healing. You mean it's about getting to know Jesus better as the healer? And as I relate to him, fellowship, and he reveals to me, and I begin to gaze at the wounds, again, as I taught last time, and I begin to see that he was wounded for my transgressions, bruised for my iniquities. I, he was chastised for my wholeness, and by those stripes I'm healed. Well, what we do, we want to formulate it, and I say, take that complexity out of there. Get back to the root. And it's all about fellowship with Jesus. And so they had the manifest presence. They had the awe factor. There was the healings. There was the miracles. There was a supernatural unity. And for every pastor in here, you want to say, oh, God, yes. To where I can see that the apostles were not spending all their time going, will you please shake hands, say you're sorry? I'm going to do a Bill Johnson. I'm going to do a Bill Johnson. That was good, Lynn. That was fantastic. Because a lot of pastoral time is about, come on, say you're sorry and shake your hands. Well, they hurt me first. Well, I know that. But they're too proud to admit it. But you're more spiritual, so would you please apologize first? <clears throat> they shared resources with extravagant giving. And then the church was just not about a building, not about a location. It wasn't even about a time, but it was about people being the church. It says that daily they were with each other and they were in the word and they were with each other and it was 24-7. And it says God was glorified. That's important to me. All of a sudden, God becomes the sinner. Not me, not my gift, not my thing, but God gets the glory. And then it says there was unprecedented favor upon the people. I mean, the church just had an overflow of the grace of God on them. They had abilities that they didn't have, but God was upon them, and he was functioning through them. And people looked at them different instead of saying, Christians? They actually liked Christians then. But then this is the one that God getting glory is number one for me. But then number two, it says that the church added to the daily, such as should be saved. And it says that thousands were added to the church. 
And I tell you, I do not sleep at night because of so many people going to hell in our region. You know, you're exaggerating. No. I'm more and more, the older I get, the more disturbed I am. And if that doesn't move you of, of God's name being vindicated and getting the glory, but also people being saved. Because if they think they've got a bad life now, they don't know Jesus, God. A Christless eternity. And you and I are to seek and save them as an instrument of the ministry of reconciliation. Now, all those things, salvation, favor, grace, miracles, all that's the byproduct on four key core elements. So we've got to find out, well, what is in that thing of breaking bread? Because I've been to some pot blessings, and all it did was add to my calorie, daily calorie count. I fellowship with people, and I, I just didn't get the bang for the buck. I want to know what this thing is that the New Testament speaks of. The gospel, I want to know what the content is. And I believe that as we rediscover truth, we're going to rediscover who we are. I want you to stand this pray. I alluded earlier in saying the, the prophetic thing that God is wanting to say to us is, will the real church stand up? I want to speak that over to you today as you're standing. Will you stand up as the real church? Would we accept the invitation of the Lord in this region to say, God, we want to be an authentic representation and expression of your life. You are the most attractive person, Jesus, that has the ability to draw all men, not just some men, but all men into yourself. Father, I just come and, Lord, with just a brokenness and a humility, we just say that we've complicated what your church is. Forgive us for losing, just flat out losing certain truths out of our, out of our gospel and deeming them, well, was it really that important? God, I pray that you'd put us on a mission to recapture and to recover and to restore. God, would you raise up new covenant to be like a you know, special forces that are on a mission to rescue, to recover, to restore. And God, I pray that you would also give us a grace that as we press into the truths of what it means to to live and preach the gospel and to be a part of a true community that lives a cross-centered 
and a resurrection-centered reality. Lord, let us be willing to count the cost, but be willing to say all for you. We're willing to go beyond the periphery, the surface, to recapture the life that you died to give us. Lord, I pray that you would give us that type of devotion, that singular earnestness, diligence, and passion to begin to press our mind and our heart down into this text. I pray, God, that you would just awaken the book of Acts to us as a people like never before. And God, that we would just take those segments of Peter preaching and Stephen preaching and Paul preaching, and we wouldn't just say yada, 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 but we would just press our mind and heart down in and looking at every line, seeing what content they put in there, knowing that they achieved such results. I ask you for that. Come upon us, Spirit of God. And Holy Spirit, I just ask you to ask us, what are you going to do with what you've heard? And Lord, if there's an accountability in the Spirit, we say, yes, we'll be accountable. We don't want to be a hearer and not a doer. Give us applications that bring about change. Bring about transformation. Not change for change's sake, but things that will Help us one step closer to being the church that you're going to come back for. One without wrinkles and age spots. Arthritic, crippled, no longer able to be who you would want us to be for you. Lord, you said that you would renew our youth. You would renew us. God, I pray that you would renew the youthful, vigorous spirit of this church. That we would be more willing and more able at this stage than we've ever been before to say, Jesus, we're married to you. We will follow the Lamb wherever he goes. We want you to conceive inside of us something that will bring a multiplication factor to this region. Hundreds, thousands of souls We believe you for it. God, we can believe that you can use this youth team to not only reap a harvest in Newcastle, but God, that it would be a a catalyst, an epicenter to break out a a, a flame that is fanned that could spread, God. Do it. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Do it, God, in Jesus' name. Everybody said... Amen. Amen. Bless you.